Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm film critic April Wolf. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, producer, and we talk in depth about one of their favorite genre films, maybe one that influenced their own work. Today, I'm really excited to have actor, writer, director, Vera Miao. Hi. Hi. Nice. So nice to have you. So nice to be here. <laughs> um, for those of you who are not as familiar with Vera's work, please let me give you an introduction. Vera is the daughter of working class immigrants from Taiwan, and that's had a profound effect on her career path and where she chooses to spend her energy. Um, she did spend many years in the nonprofit and social justice sector before becoming a professional actor. In that time, she appeared in a bunch of shows, you know, like Legends, Bones, NCIS. She was making the rounds. She did all of it. From there, however, she expanded her roles behind the scenes and wrote and produced an apocalyptic road trip movie called Best Friends Forever. And that premiered at Slamdance Film Fest in 2013. Her feature script at first, then, was part of the 2014 Film Independent Screenwriting Lab and the 2014 Sundance Institute Women in Film Financing Intensive. At first has been described as a queer before sunrise for the orange is the new black generation, which is, I love that. Um, Vera was also a fellow of the Tribeca Film Institutes through her lens, the Tribeca Chanel Women's Filmmaker Program. Why do these things always have such long titles, too? They just, you know. Like, you got to get all the brands in. and the, like, They got to get all the brands. I mean, it, it, when you're branded Chanel, they want that in there. Yes, they yeah. definitely want yeah. that in there. Um, and in 2017, Vera ventured into series work um, with the horror anthology Two Sentence Horror Stories, and that's produced by Stage 13 um, from Warner Brothers Television Group. The series premiered at TIFF, I believe. Is that correct? It actually premiered at Tribeca. Ooh, Tribeca. So mm-hmm. the series premiered at Tribeca. I remember seeing uh, it, it, TIFF, um, I believe, I think. Um, and a second season is underway. Each episode is a single contained horror short like American Horror Story mixed with Black Mirror. And uh, that uh, the feature, there is a feature that's coming maybe out. Uh, we're, we're in production this year. Okay. So she's in production on a feature from one of the episodes called mm-hmm. Ma, um, which is uh, it's a pretty chilling episode. Ah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Vera chose today to talk about the Wachowski sisters, The Matrix. The Matrix. Could you tell me just a little bit about why that's one of your fave genre films? You know, it's so funny because when I was thinking about the movies for um, this podcast, there were obviously a bunch that came up and some that, you know, previous filmmakers have talked about favorites. And But The Matrix just keeps coming up for me in my life. And I was thinking back why. Mm-hmm. You know, it came out in 1999. I was really young. I was in my early 20s. And I went to see it, I think, three or four times in the theater, paid by myself. By um, yourself, too. By myself. Yeah, I mean, obviously I went like the first one or two times with people. And mm-hmm. then after that, I just went by myself. And, you know, the movie, it works on so many different levels that I actually think really resonate with what I'm trying to do as a filmmaker. Okay. Um, and obviously when it came out in, in 99, I was so many years away from being anywhere close to this industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so... You were still in, you know, either... in the social justice nonprofit sector. Yeah, yeah. very much so um, for many, many more years after that. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, 
I think that The Matrix is a favorite for me because it sort of achieves all of these different levels that I think are really critical to me personally. Um, first is just it's an excellent genre film. It's just an excellent sci-fi. Like the world building, the story, um, you know, the narrative, the characters, the conflict, the mm-hmm. tension, all of it is just there for me. And, you know, as a film, it's, you know, the world that they build is visually really stunning. There are so many great ideas, um, you know, just dramatic tension. I just... I just love it as a film, as yeah. a sci-fi story. Um, and then it also manages to do all of that to really break new ground visually, um, really excite and see, show us something fresh and different while also having a message. And I think that the message in The Matrix um, is twofold. Mm-hmm. Like one is the explicit story of revolution. One is the explicit story of mindlessness yeah. and being plugged in. One is a really explicit critique of that mindlessness, meaning that you are always going to be a potential agent of the system. Yeah. Um, and this notion of resistance, which for me is someone coming, you know, with my identity and sort of the things that have animated me is just so personally resonant. To, and to see it in a movie, this form that I have loved my entire life was really powerful. And then on, a, on another other level that wasn't as explicit was just in the characters and the casting. You know, I remember being in the theater and watching that first scene where Trinity just sort of, I, I mean, my mouth was open. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then it kept going. I was like, you know, Keanu, of course, I love Keanu. Always love for Keanu. But like Morpheus <laughs> is a black man. Mm-hmm. The this crew on the Nebuchadnezzar is actually mostly predominantly people of color and quite honestly, sort of masculine of center presenting women. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, that's not a part of their quote unquote narrative. That's not a part of the story. They just are. And they look like people that I know. Yeah. And to see the confluence of all of these things, right? Sci-fi that I love, you know, filmmaking and storytelling at a level that I can really get behind, showing something new, having an explicit message, um, and then also populating it with with actors who reflect my world, but that I don't actually see on screen very often. Yeah. And those are a lot of those were new actors. I mean, you've got Lawrence Fishburne and Keanu Reeves were the two that really sold it, I think, to the studio. But Carrie Ann Moss had no career before this. She says that. She's like, there was nothing before this. And then you've got what, um, I mean, Marcus Chong, there was apparently a problem with him on set or whatever, but like he he didn't have like a huge career before that movie. There's a there's a bunch of folks who who were uh, play, oh, the woman who plays like the Oracle. Mm-hmm. You know, she's a Gloria, character actor. Yeah, exactly. So the world was just so populated and it was, you know, I mean, it was just really, it was, it was, it was something that I never necessarily imagined and I didn't expect when I paid my ticket like a good sci-fi genre nerd yes. to go see this movie on opening night. It, it just kind of blew me away. Well, for those of you guys who haven't seen The Matrix, um, today's episode is obviously going to give you some spoilers, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. My motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you would like to pause this podcast and watch The Matrix first, this is your chance. And I'm assuming that you're back and that you want to hear us talk about The Matrix. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a synopsis on the movie. Written and directed by Lana and Lily Wachowski for a release in 1999, The Matrix tells the story of a computer programmer and hacker, Thomas Anderson, played by Keanu Reeves. One day, Thomas gets 
starts getting messages on his computer. Then he's visited by a mysterious hacker named Trinity, who's played by Carrie Ann Moss, who we just talked about. After that, he starts getting phone calls from a man named Morpheus, played by Lawrence Fishburne. All are telling him that they know what he's been looking for, and they keep calling him Neo. Thomas doesn't buy what they're selling quite yet. He needs some more convincing. But when some cops, uh, quote-unquote cops, put a literal bug inside Neo's belly button and Trinity successfully removes it, he becomes a believer. Morpheus offers him the chance to take a red pill that will disrupt his brain and show him the truth of the world, and he takes it. Suddenly, Neo wakes up in a pink goo tank in a hive filled with a bunch of other goo-filled gross tanks, and Neo is then rescued by the crew of the Nebuchadnezzar, including Morpheus and Trinity. This, what he's seeing now on board the Nebuchadnezzar, is actual real world, and what Neo's been living in is the Matrix. So the people of the Nebuchadnezzar help Neo train in martial arts and bending reality because at some point in time, he is going to have to come up against the folks in power because they believe he is, quote, the one. He's still a little bit reluctant, though, um, but slowly he starts to see that he has the ability to fight, but he still doesn't believe he is the one even when the Oracle tells them he is. While the crew is in the Matrix, however, um, they're ambushed by the bad guys and the crew member who betrayed them, and Morpheus allows himself to get caught. Neo attempts to save Morpheus while the bad guys start killing crew members in real life. And then Neo is then killed on the rescue mission, but Trinity wakes him up with a kiss, and he's suddenly very powerful and ready to fight the bad guy as the one. Um, So this movie... The structure of it is something mm-hmm. I think that we need to address because the structure is um, it's a nonlinear story in a linear story, which I love. Yeah. And it's something that Keanu Reeves said, uh, quote, it wasn't called uh, it wasn't what I call a climbing a mountain thing. Like there's the mountain and we're going to climb the mountain. And then we have the trials of climbing the mountain. That's how he was just like, uh, you know, it's it's not you know, like one kind of hero's journey arc. Um, and that was something different than we had seen. Um, quite a bit. Uh, Dark City had come out the year yeah. before, and that was a little bit in the same vein. Um, but it's one of the things that drove Keanu to take the movie um, because he'd done a lot of linear, like, and then, and mm. then action stuff, which they're all great. It's wonderful. But I was hoping we could talk a little bit about the story structure and what strikes you about that and maybe what you try to do in your own work. It's so fascinating that you, it's my brain is literally popping off right now, now that you've said that, because I realized that you know, this is helping me connect why I love The Matrix so much. And it was so seminal because I actually really, 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 really enjoy stories. And I write a lot of stories that essentially – can I curse on this? Yes. Okay. That fuck with your sense of reality. Yes. Um, and, you know, really push this notion of the unreliable narrator into so many different directions. And, you know, and I think The Matrix, you know, it's less an unreliable narrator in the sense of psychosis or delusion or what have you, but that we are all like this is actually the human condition where we are plugged into a false reality in order to stay sub- like a – you know, um, subject yeah. and totally powerless and mindless. And, you know, the the beautiful thing about the structure of that is that the film, you know, we are with Neo as that truth mm-hmm. is being revealed in pieces. And, and then with him as he tries to essentially test the boundaries of reality and surreal reality, yeah. right? Uh, and how he can use it. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because I've never thought about it that way. 
And it is a recurring theme in almost every story that I've been writing for the last three years. Really? Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, one of the episodes of the series, which is being made into a feature ma, is the ultimate unreliable narrator. Yeah. Um, and which may be a spoiler, maybe not. Um, you know, and I think that I have a another feature um, in development and another project in development where each of them in very different ways you know, are basically experiences where where we start in the story mm-hmm. is and the assumptions that we make and the information that we're given um, really become undermined um, and converted and reframed and changed as we go through the journey of the story. Yeah. So it's actually, you know, uh, it's funny because in doing that, and all of it's unconscious for me, April, like this conversation is kind of blowing my mind a little bit. Oh, your therapist. Yeah. Fine. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What's <laughs> up with my head? Um it is like I think I am always balancing the conventional thinking about a three-act structure with this way that my brain works where I want to be dropped into the unknown, mm-hmm. to be given sets of information that I use as sort of like my my flotation device through yeah. the unknown yeah. and then have that taken away from me. I mean I think that that's just a lovely – um, to be to not be ahead of the story is the thing I I love the most as an audience member. Yeah, and that's one of those things where this movie and really most of the Wachowski's stuff is they what their quote about this movie was like, look, the beginning is really crazy, and then you start to figure things out. Like yeah. someone asked them about it, and they they have very kind of like terse answers when the interviews were were making the rounds then, and and that was their response. Like, look, the beginning is crazy, and then you just start figuring things out. And that uh, idea of withholding mm-hmm. is it's just a it's it's a fascinating development. I think maybe maybe the Wachowskis got that just from their experience of writing comic books too, because you get to I think that you don't have to reveal everything right away in comics. No, I, it's and impossible. I, I mean, I think it's a it's an incredibly effective dramatic device. Right. As an audience member, as a you know, we are we're kind of uh, trained to believe, at least I think, like kind of a white Western modern sort of approach to storytelling. There is a beginning, middle and end. You know, we are sort of gently moved along the runway ramp into the story. Yeah. You know, it's a journey that we take with our hero. Right. Yeah. Um, and and I think that um, I don't know what it is about me, what it is about why I am particularly attracted, not just in sort of the stories that I love, but also the stories that I tell, to really refuse that comfort. Yeah. Um, and to actually actively push myself. So when I'm writing and thinking about stories, I am like, does this need to be traditional? Like, do I need to have an introduction into the character? Do I actually need to set all of this stuff up? Or is that just sort of a prevailing default position that's not necessarily in service Mm -hmm. of the best experience of the story that I'm trying to tell? Um, I want to get back into um, uh, structure and how to visualize a story, but we're going to take a a quick break. So one second, we'll be right back. Beginning this summer, you can listen to new episodes of Inside Pop every other week for an even deeper dive inside the world of pop culture. Now, we're still bringing you our brilliant insight, always on the nose opinions, and insidery inside information on the most interesting pop culture stories of the week. And we'll also have interviews with the pop culture professionals who create the culture you crave. For example, we'll speak to casting directors about how they find the right talent for the right role. 
We'll talk to music supervisors about how they choose the music to create the right mood. And we'll grill producers who'll discuss what exactly a producer does. Oh man, Sean, how many times has someone said to you, oh, you're a producer, so what do you actually do? So many times. <laughs> Same here. So make sure to catch Inside Pop every other Wednesday on Maximum Fun to indulge your pop culture obsessions. And to hear in-depth interviews from the movers and the shakers in TV, music, film, and more. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm here today joined by Vera Miao, and we are talking about The Matrix. Um, so one of the things that helped convince the Wachowskis um, to get money to make this movie, because we have to remember, this is this was their first big movie. Bound yeah. came out, and they wrote and directed that, and but they had written The Matrix long before Bound, mm-hmm. and... Uh, no one wanted to give them money. Um, Joel Silver was like, here, make Bound, see what you can do with this. It's a low-budget one. I mean, it, it didn't do well at the box office, but it had the markings of a cult hit pretty pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, and so I think that was enough for people to take interest in it. But they still had so much more convincing to do because I'm I'm trying to imagine, like, before The Matrix, you read the script where you're just like, and then he puts his hand into the mirror, but the mirror is a glob <laughs> that then starts taking over his hand and his arm. And then, what, you know, like, the the progress and the, the visions that they have were just you know, too insane for people to understand, especially like old white guys in a room, right? And so they hired artists to do a 600-page storyboard of the entire film with all of the concept art. So essentially what you see on the screen is what they did to sell this movie, Um, which is amazing, you know? Uh, I... I think it it makes it makes a lot of sense to me because when I'm I'm thinking about like the script, I don't know if I would have bought it either. I'd be like, "What are you guys even trying to do?" You know. Um, but I'm curious about your experience of trying to sell your vision to people. Yes, um, I think for me the visuals are really, really, really key. So one of the first things, or one of the really, really early things that I'm doing is I'm pulling references Mm -hmm. all the time and I think in part so with the Wachowskis with the Matrix that makes sense right because sci-fi when you're imagining a completely different world um, it is really important for someone to be able to see what the vision that you have in your head is because there isn't necessarily you know a pre-existing reference that you can say it's like this and particularly the Matrix kind of blew a lot of visual language and rules you know up and you know established a look that we're really used to now and a palette we're really used to now um but yeah can you it's hard like I mean I lived before the Matrix right and like what you know our movies were not like this at all. I mean, obviously, you could look at The Matrix and say what the visual inspirations that they that the Wachowskis probably drew from in sci-fi and in other films. But it really, I mean, I think that to, I think that they really, really established this particular sci-fi noir look, this really intense monochromatic palette mm-hmm. that we become, that's become really, really synonymous with a sci-fi sort of dystopic world. Um, and, you know, and I think that this this whole notion of you know that's like this 
I would imagine um, that they're like, oh, these are these different planes of existence, essentially. And so when we're here, this is the palette. This is the look. Everything's shiny. But it's also old. It's like, you know, because the, you know, the Matrix itself as a world is both this mix of classic cars and old architecture and really crumbling organic material. But it's also super slick and super techy, which is a very interesting blend that I don't know, you know – Obviously, there it's it pays homage to a lot of things that came before it, but it did actually, I think, established a vocabulary that we use real, a lot now without realizing yeah. it. I'm also, I'm, I mean, like the the color of of that is a lot. You know, they've got a cool blue and like the green, like the green glow of like a, an old computer screen. Yeah, like those two that you're traversing between the matrix and then the real world. Really dark, really high contrast with that really strong, almost acid green. Yes. You know, that's really discomforting and, you know, what we associate with technology. Yes. Um, at least the matrix showed us that that's how we associate what we associate with technology. And it was, you know, it was the 90s, right? So it was like DOS-based computers. And yeah. so, right, the screen on those DOS-based computers often did have that sickly green. Oh, yes, of, I remember this. Yeah. And, and there are there are people who are seeing this, young people who are seeing this movie now who never had that experience of a DOS-based, you know, like the, the black and green right. a- ever. But that's just, uh, you know, carried on through their experience now of what they feel is techie or computery. It's It's interesting. I think that there are two different kinds of directors. You've got Lana and Lily who are like, I mean, they storyboard every single thing that they do before mm-hmm. they shoot it. Every person who's been on set with them is just like, no, you don't stray from the script. Like they, the two directors, they might confer with one another like quietly, but you know, like, you know what the script is. They've already gone over it. This is exactly what you have to do. This is exactly what the DP has to do. Like there's no changes, nothing. The only changes might happen in like a little bit in the editing, but even then, you know, they're writing for the final product. And then, you know, you have directors who are inspired by the space or, yeah. you know, it's it's just a completely different process. Yeah. Um, and there is there was an I like um, there was an actor account of uh, someone with a smaller role in The Matrix who said that um, you didn't get any kind of acting school advice from like Lana and Lily. They would just be like, I don't know, put some mustard on it. And like use like <laughs> these weird Chicago isms because they're like they're like Chicago through and through, um, and people will be like, oh, okay, <laughs> you know, like they they wouldn't they wouldn't get any kind of like directing directing uh-huh. from it. They were just like, you know what this character is, just do your job. Um, and I find that really fascinating because like that means that they are very confident that everything is on the page. Everything, every single thing that you know about the story, it should be on the page. Do you feel like? You're discovering how to work with your actors while you're in a space. Yeah, I mean, so so I my training is an act as an as is as an actor. I, I didn't go to film school, so I did go to theater conservatory in New York. Um, and you know what's interesting, and that I went to the Atlantic Theater um, Company's acting school, which is David Mamet and William H Macy's school. And it's funny because one of the things that I was taught right off the bat is never assume you're going to have a good director who knows how to talk to an actor at all. Yeah. So you do all – you're your own director. Yeah. So, you know, develop a rigor around understanding story and dramatic structure um, and develop your craft as an actor and also understand where the camera is, you know, what your relationship is to it, you know, what the scene needs, how to pull back, direct yourself. And – 
it's it's really interesting, right? Because that was what I was told from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I do think that as a every director is different in terms of how they relate to actors. For me, I think acting, unsurprisingly, because I was an actor, even though I'm not anymore, I think acting is a deeply honorable tradition. Um, And I really cherish and value what actors bring. But I also recognize that it's a hard position to be in. Mm -hmm. And to just, I would never want an actor to kind of feel like they're just out there floating. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It makes me uncomfortable when I'm just like, oh, God, I'm flailing. I yeah. Wanna... <laughs> and also in terms of as a director, you know, I know what I want out of performance. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I and I don't know what put mustard on it, actually, even. I don't think the actor did either. They I, were I just like, oh, OK, I'll do it a little bit with extra. <laughs> you know? I mean, I, there are certain things I will never say to an actor. I'll never say to them, do it faster. Mm. Do it louder. What would you what would you say as an alternative? What would you like if you if you maybe wanted them to have like more energy in the scene or if you wanted them to do it like a little bit faster? What would you say is like an alternative to the to an actor? So I might say I need you to up the stakes or on a level of like one to ten, the urgency and the importance in this scene is a nine. You're giving me a four Mm -hmm. and let them interpret because it may not be that the interpretation is faster. Right. It, you know, so the important thing is that they understand are, we are on the same page and they understand for me in the arc of the story. And that's mm-hmm. my job. This is crucial that we hit this level. Yeah. You know, and and so an actor, you know, an actor's job, an actor's job is to be in the moment. So in, in my definition, in a perfect world, the director is there shepherding the actor through those moments with a broader vision about how those moments will piece together in the overall story. And even though I was trained as an actor to understand the entire arc of the story, understand every scene in relationship to that arc, mm-hmm. to me, that's the director's job. So that the actor has the freedom and the trust to really give over to the moment in the scene and to be able to really respond. So I'll never say, like I said, I'll, you know. Never say do it faster. I might say the the stakes are so much higher. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, I will say – I might say this part of the line, that's the most important point, drive to that point. You know, like that's what you want to hit. Yes. Um, uh, Louder, you know, like things like that, they're they're not really story-based. They're not motivation-based. And so an actor can't really – doesn't – you know that's the that's the one of the consequences, but it actually defines the performance as opposed to lets the actor bring their interpretation of the motivation. Mm-hmm. So I mean, like you're saying, like concrete directions that maybe have kind of like some sort of imagery or something that they they can understand, or you guys can both have some sort of point of context that that makes sense. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that it, it it all it all varies. Like I'm so I always try my hardest and sometimes I probably fail, but I always try my hardest not to give the actor like a direction for how to act the scene. Yes. Um, so even I would never say, like, give me angrier. Right. I will instead be like, you know, talk to them about what's happening in the scene. Mm hmm. 
and, you know, work with them to really hone in on a common language between the two of us, but how the character feels about what's happening and to what degree they're able to unleash their response to yeah. what's happening. Yeah, because anger means different things to different people. Absolutely. So not having that same point of reference. Um, we are going to take another quick break, but then I want to get back into something that Vera had brought up in the beginning, which is making a message movie <laughs> and, and what that means, especially in genre films. Um, so one quick break and we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Paula Poundstone. And I'm Adam Felber. Adam, I haven't gotten one thing done today. Well, let me see your to-do list. Ah, yeah. Well, here. Make 30-second promo for Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone, so at least you're getting that done. Score! Except you haven't said what the show is about. We're like a comedy field guide to life, starring me and you. I give useful advice, and we have real experts to talk about things like how to keep a friend or what to do when you encounter a bear. Bully for you, but you haven't said where people can find the show. Oh, MaximumFun.org or wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf and I'm joined here by Vera Meow and we are talking about The Matrix. Um, so one thing you're talking about is a message movie. And this one, I mean, all of their movies, all of the Wachowski sisters movies are message based to begin with. You know, it's like this kernel of an idea of what the world is, how we see reality. You see that even in Sense8 in that, the uh, the series that they have. Um, and I, I'm curious, you know, because I, I find that genre films actually have more messages than not. Um, it's just that they're often kind of buried, whereas this one is a little bit more overt, you know, and they're saying there's like, wake up to reality, that kind of thing. Um, what did you see as the main kind of takeaway message of this? I mean, I, I will just say overall, I think every movie has a message. I think that the whole point yeah. of stories, stories are how humans make meaning. So they are by definition a message. Yeah. And sometimes um, those messages aren't great. No. <laughs> you know, and I think that depending on who you are, you get the privilege and the advantage of saying that you're you're just telling stories. Um, I think there's a really implicit power in that. Yeah. Um, and so I would say every every movie Every story has a message. It's just how intentional and how much you admit that you thought about that going into your story. Um, I wish more people would think about it, at least towards the end of the process. Maybe understand what your subconscious was. Right. Because there's still a message in that. Yes. You know, the unthinking, quote unquote, mind that creates a story is still conveying a message. I mean, I think um, with, you know, with the Wachowskis, it's clear it's clear that the sisters really see their storytelling as a way of, you know, putting out images and people and characters and journeys that reflect the kind of world that they are familiar with and that they want to see. Yeah. And and I really resonate to that as a filmmaker. Um, you know, like a message movie. Is it a message? You know, I, I mean, I think like no Country for Old Men to me is a message movie. Sure. You know, There Will Be Blood is a message movie. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, but I, I I think that there, one of the things that I really love about genre, um, I will say, is that it gives you this, you know, whether it's when I say genre, I might apply it loosely to like horror, sci-fi, fantasy. Oh, know? yeah. Listeners of the show definitely know what you're talking about. Yeah. But. I mean, I think that the... I love being able to really grapple with these big themes and big ideas um, without having to kind of 
skirt away from it because we have the wrappings of genre. Yeah. Um, it gives us the freedom and the license. Like we go into genre to imagine yeah. different scenarios, different worlds, different endings, different consequences, you know, different sort of rules of existence and reality. Right. And so to me, that's just free range to to really be able to play out the questions that are burning for us, you know, to really imagine, you know, how those might actually like what's happened with the terms that we have today. What would they be like, you mm-hmm. know, um, in, a, in a different scenario or into the future. I mean, it's why I love it so much. And if you were to take, like, if you were to take the matrix, right, and this the theme, right, that we are mindless, you know, we are agents of the state, we are, you know, sort of, you know, mollified by consumption. Yes. Um, and to say that freedom and liberation comes from the painful extraction from that machine. And it's a lonely uphill existence, but it is true freedom, right? You know, I, uh, I, I think that if if you were to put that into like a straight drama, yeah, everyone would laugh that movie out of existence as being too on the nose, too heavy handed. Yes, and you know, whereas Matrix, you can just give over to it, right? Because you know, um, and and that's what I love about genre, and that's why I think there's such a strong tradition of you know really working through the big issues, the big problems, the big ideas. Yeah, you know, even if they're small stories like Rosemary's Baby. Which you know is a, is a complicated story. Given very the, complicated, <laughs> you know. It's it, but like that to me is actually really interesting, right? Like his oeuvre, like Polanski's oeuvre, is all about the subjugation of women, which is yeah both telling and ironic or not ironic, given his own personal. And we'll never know, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But I mean, I think that like. You know, small movies, small genre films that might seem small stories are still able to grapple with huge ideas because of the element of the fantastical, because of the element of the quote unquote not real. Yes. Um, It gives us license. And it's why I love the genre. I love genre so much. Yeah, I think I think that Lana and Lily figured that out pretty early, too, especially because they got really into anime. Yeah. Where it was the one place where they could find that it was exploring the philosophical ideas that they we're interested in, but in a genre fun context. Um, and, you know, this is essentially, this is like an anime film. You yeah. Know? Um, it looks like a comic book. It does. And, you know, that's how they drew it. And, you know, even I would say especially the reflections in Morpheus's glasses. Consistently, that's a comic book look. Um, you know, like a single panel where you get to see the entire scene with like two people, but it's only one person. And you get, you know, it's you always see Neo's reflection in what he's doing in the glasses very, very clearly. Um, yeah, certain certain panels. I can I can see yeah, that. And, and a lot of the establishing shots, you know. Like there's like one in particular right when they are um, picking Neo up in order to debug him. Yes. And the shot is just such an overhead shot with all of this rain pouring down and all of these angles from the buildings. And it is so noir. It's so graphic. I mean, it almost doesn't look like it's a real, quote unquote, photograph, uh, you know, real films, you know, sort of – Real, it's it actually looks like it's a it's a it's a you know it's a frame from a comic book. Yeah, um, and uh, that's that's interesting though too because they're I mean like these directors are borrowing heavily from Asian cinema and Asian culture. Yeah, and this um, I mean Yun Wu Ping 
is the choreographer, yeah. the stunt choreographer mm-hmm. for this entire thing, trained with all the actors for like mm-hmm. four months before they started shooting. And cinema lovers will probably know that Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon came out a year after The Matrix. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that the wire work that had been huge in Hong Kong cinema was then kind of catapulted into this, you know, Academy Award type of context, mm-hmm. which I don't know, maybe wouldn't have happened without The Matrix. I'm not even totally sure. But um, it, it's... I mean, would you say that it's an appropriation or is it like a, a cultural sensitivity of just like appreciation? I feel like I can't say that generally across the board. I think it's a case by case. I mean, I there are better people than me who can talk about what the roots are of, you know, sort of like a Western sci-fi tradition, why it so heavily references um, Star Wars, everything, everything, our, our Western... the philosophy, the aesthetics. Um, you know, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure why, in a weird way, like all things Asian are equated with modernity or the future. In when you're when you're appropriating the aesthetics and the philosophy, but that as a people and as a culture, we're actually oftentimes just assumed to be ancient um, and <laughs> mystical and like behind the times. Yeah, you know and. I, I'm not 100% sure about so maybe someone can write a like a dissertation on that tension. Someone and please write that. Yeah, what's baked in there? I mean, I also am just so tired honestly of like sci-fi films of the future um where the aesthetics are really borrowed heavily from the way that Asian cities look right now. Many Asian cities look um but there's no Asians in the story or in the world. Yeah. I mean, I think in Blade Runner 2049 there's like literally like Chinese characters and Japanese characters and noodles, but like there's like no Asians anywhere. Yeah, what happened to them? <laughs> they just I, get tired and laugh. Like no, I think like Asians don't make it into the future. Um, even though, oh, um, so <laughs> like in terms of like actual percentage of the global population, we're we're quite significant. Um, we apparently die off in every future, um, but our aesthetics remain. Thank God. Um, so it's so depressing. No, it's okay. You know. It's okay. It's okay. But I, I do think that, you know, um, there's also really lots of instances of which I think The Matrix is one where the it's homage. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is also part of just the talk. It's just the soup of inspiration. Yeah. You know, um, and you're just pulling from that soup as much as like, look, I, you know, I'm Chinese American. I was sort of born in the U.S. Um, and so but ostensibly raised in the U.S. And so my relationship to Asia is also through an American lens. And yep. so when I reference that stuff, some of it is a really clearly to me, I want to say, is a le- it's always a legitimate connection. But it's not like I grew up. Like I couldn't represent modern China. Okay, Wait, Vera, are you saying that you can't represent all of modern China? In I this cannot. Discussion? Oh, weird. It, however, if I was born in China, clearly I could. Yeah, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. You know, all of modern China could be right. No, I mean, I think that... Um, you know, I think that there's really clear instances where, you know, it is – it's also hard to kind of make the difference – like carve the line between homage, appropriation, yeah, you know, inspiration. Yeah. You know. Some um, are very obvious, I think. Yeah. It's the ones that are, you know, that you have to think more deeply about after you watch it. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, the – and you know there, the directors here aren't necessarily only borrowing from 
like Asian culture too, yeah. because they do have you know like uh, Christian biblical mm-hmm. background too. Very strongly. I mean, honestly, like you've got uh, Thomas is uh, doubting Thomas. You know, like mm-hmm. there's like his that's his whole constructed identity is like a kind of Jesus savior slash doubting Absolutely. Thomas. Kind the ship of thing. is called the Nebuchadnezzar. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a very you know the you know the resistant city of Zion. Yeah. You know, there is a lot of liberation theology, you know, from a lot of different places at play. And I think the Wachowskis in particular are clearly directors who pull from a lot of personal loves and personal interests and kind of are really interested in hybridizing them and pushing them all together in order to create perhaps something new. Yeah. And you can see it a lot in Sense8. You can see it, um, you know, obviously throughout The Matrix, including like two and three, which I think were not successful films, but, you know, were the sort of the extension of the revolution part of of the storyline. And so it's like... You know, and I think that's all of us, right? Like all of us really borrow heavily from our personal interests. And like a lot of, you know, I have for sure, like I have a project right now that is steeped pretty heavily in Buddhist philosophy, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's a sci-fi epic, right? You know, and I think that, um, you know, and, and and it's what I loved also, you know, what I loved about The Matrix, that actually, I, I will be honest, I felt like an homage, mm-hmm. was the kind of fun and games part of the film where, you know, Neo has started his quote unquote training, right? Yes. And who doesn't want to be plugged in and in three minutes is a kung fu master? Yeah, That's what, me. What does that he is say? me. He's like, oh, I know kung fu. I know kung fu. <laughs> and then you have this direct homage to kung fu films where he and Morpheus, you know, fight in this sort of simulated, you know, martial arts studio and it's such a to me it makes me smile every time I see it because I was like the Wachowskis love kung fu movies and this is a fan's tribute to all of the things that you love I mean it's a dream it's a brilliant stroke of storytelling and a dream to like to me I wanted to be Neo so badly just so I could become a kung fu master without all of the years of rigorous training. So boring yeah. You know what I mean like (laughs) I mean I studied kung fu and I was like oh I just want to be Neo I just want to like you know be able to do all of these things in 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 an hour of of uploading and then to. Do you do kung fu in movies too? Have you done kung fu in TV shows or anything? No 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 no, I've never. No one's ever asked you? Uh, no. I mean, I've done some fight scenes, but I've never... And I actually had entertained for a hot second what it would be like for me to become a stunt woman. Um, and and so spent some time talking to stunt choreographers and um Which would be nice men. as, a, like, an, an Asian-American woman. And, we're, you know, we're talking about whether it's homage or not, you know, like, that's... Uh, having that kind of representation, yeah. in, like, in that way is, is, uh, is wonderful. But, like... <laughs> three minutes into discovering what the life is actually like. I was like, okay. <laughs> nah, <laughs> well, never mind. All right. Um, you know, but I, I, I adore, I, I think what stunt men and women and stunt choreographers and fight choreographers do is, is exceptional. Um, but, uh, um, what were we talking about? Um, Just like whether or not those scenes are homage or whether they are. That to me felt like such an homage. It felt like such a fan's love letter, you know, that I could really relate to. Because I was like, oh, they're giving me all of the things that I love, too. Yeah. And one of the reasons I I 
also maybe side with you on that is the way that it is directed because um, they're directing like Hong Kong cinema where they don't cut. It's not there aren't like a ton of cuts within scene. It's something that is so different from Western filmmaking. Yeah. Is that in these fight scenes you always cut on a punch so that you can't see how they hit. But you know one of the reasons why all the actors did their own stunts is so they could potentially film it just like Hong Kong cinema. Yeah. Um, and so there is a there is a kind of deep and abiding love for the process of filmmaking, I think, too. Yes. And Yuan Ping is a legend and a genius and the director of some of my favorite films of all time. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I also think that I think The Matrix owes a lot to John Woo. I don't know, you know, yes, like if, if they would attest to that, but I think it's fairly obvious. Um, and the kind of the style and the panache and the balletic kind of lyrical approach to action, yes, you know, is is both, you know, something that's a strong tradition. Obviously, John Woo is sort of the the the, the one who kind of defined that for like the era of gangster and thriller films, mm-hmm. but it's also, you know, a very strong thread in old kung fu films. And so, you know, it's it's hard to disentangle, you know, but I agree with you that 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 scene in the you know, the fight scene in the studio was, it was so Yuan Ping, right? Like, I was like, oh, like, this is not... Mm-hmm. And and to me, to have him be a part of the film and to really, you know, define the He didn't the even know scenes. how they got his number. He was like, I truly don't know how they got my number. And I told him no. And then when I read the script, I was like, no, the script is good. I'm going to do this. Uh... He said no, because he was like, who are these people? Yeah. <laughs> You know, their ambition and their vision. And to me, like, to me, I watched The Matrix. And of all of the things that I love, one of the pieces was also, I was like, the Wachowskis are fans. They're just fans. And, you know, there's a certain degree. Like, I might talk about messages. I might talk about the importance of representation. I might talk about, you know, how to be, you know, talk serious about, you know, f- how to choose shots and, you know, tell a story visually. All of those things are, you know, um, a part of me. And then there's just joy. There's just joy and love and, you know, something that feels a little purer about movies and about films that I – it's why I make films. And if I ever lose that joy, then I, it's my, that'll be my signal that it's not my time anymore mm-hmm. to keep telling stories. And to me, when I watched The Matrix, I was like, the Wachowskis were having a blast. And they were doing what they love. And they put that love on the screen. And that's part of what I also responded to so heavily. Oh, well, thank you so much for coming in, Vera. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to Switchblade Sisters. Next week, we'll be talking to writer and director Sarah Adina Smith. She's best known for her 2016 film Buster's Mal Heart, starring Rami Malek. She's also directed episodes of Legion, Hannah, and Room 104. And she's on the show to discuss Argentina's highest grossing film of all time, Wild Tales. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we'll read it on air. Lauren's Kibi Kibi says, uh, April rules and so does April and I hope that that was like a purposeful like parallel mistake because I think that's funny um, Sarah Caroline says for a woman that writes horror and sees the reaction on everyone's face when I tell them I write horror this show gives me so much life and so much encouragement awesome Sarah I'm so happy to have a sister like you if you want to let us know what you think of the show you can tweet at us at switchbladepod or email us at switchbladesisters at maximumfun.org please check out our Facebook group too that's facebook.com slash groups slash switchbladesisters our producer is Casey O'Brien our senior producer is Laura 
Swisher, and this is a production of MaximumFun.org. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.